It's Zach Lingley teaching. I'm so popular. And it's my first episode of 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. And as it's the first episode of the year, I'm going to be reflecting on one of my favorite pieces of art from 2021. Kadi Pamupamu's Candy Racer with two very special guests. Who are you? Um, I'm Steven Zarantz. Uh, I'm a writer from Baltimore, Maryland. Um, yeah, and I'm very excited to be on this episode as this album was my favorite pop album of last year. Yay. <laughs> and all of you? <laughs> no, no, I was going to ask, uh, I was going to ask Miss Fogbrain, who are you as well? Uh, I go by Fogbrain on various platforms. It's terrible name i know but i've stuck with it for some reason uh or folk brain arts on um social media and stuff and i'm a two and three d artist and designer and do stuff on video games music graphic design production all kinds of stuff you know wherever i'm required and when i'm procrastinating on art i'm usually on twitter for some reason just posting into the ether and uh it's very i'm really glad to be here today to talk about uh, a really I think an important album. I think so one too. of the best things out of the last year. It oh. was not many highlights, but it was uh, it was pretty bright. I think. Absolutely, yeah. And I'll ask you, Stephen, what are you doing? Um, I am sitting in my apartment having a beer after a long day of beauty. I uh, went tanning, did red light therapy, did a little shopping, worked out. So you know. Big day, big day for me. Big stressful day as beauty. <laughs> I love it. Fogbrain, what are you doing? Um, I woke up and had some coffee and listened to the album again and gathered through my notes and just sitting here in my office, you know, banging some brass balls just to relax my mind before we get right into some high energy discussion. Incredible. And lastly, Stephen, why do you follow me? I know I jumped the gun on this one. I was I was too excited there. <laughs> so um, I listened to Gangbang first, and then kind of moved my way over to I'm So Popular. And um, you know, I feel like we share a lot of same likes in literature, video games, uh, cinema, um, and it was really that. There's a couple of Pride episodes that you did where you were discussing Andrew Holleran and, you know, Larry Kramer. And I was like, oh, this is one of my people. And so that's when I got into the whole cult of Chi-Chi, uh, <laughs> so to say. Uh, so, yes, that is why I follow you. I love to hear that. Um, I actually recall you previously from kind of floating around the J-pop stratosphere when I was, a, yeah, weirdly adjacent to it i dip my toe in a lot of different um little areas of uh, stan twitter i i guess that's what that is no absolutely like i remember you just like kind of like being vaguely there and i was always like uh impressed by like what i saw on the timeline but i never got a follow back and so i think i unfollowed you like three times or something when i was like still in the <laughs> Still an Utada Hikaru stan. Uh, and then I'm really overjoyed that uh, Gang Bang and I'm So Popular have finally brought us together because there is really a special bond between two gay men who uh, both know the deep terrors of Andrew Holleran. So. 
Exactly. We're here now. So I'm, you know, big uh, heart to you. You too. And Fogbrain, why do you follow me? Um, I think it was because I saw uh, somebody who I followed retweeted one of your tweets on Twitter. And like within that weird Twitter space sphere that I kind of have, it's like a little bit of everything. And I remember clicking on your profile and being like, oh, uh, <laughs> this person seems quite quirky. But I didn't follow you then. And then you just, like, kept reappearing on my timeline constantly. I don't think it was until, like, uh, Yana, who you've had on the podcast before, and she follows me. We're mutuals. And uh, I just thought, okay, I love what this person's doing. And then, like, you know, as time went on, I familiarized myself with what you're into with, like, you know, Evangelion, Twin Peaks and... I think the first significant interaction we had was when we were talking about the 1984 Budokan show of YMO, and I was just like, oh, this, this is my kind of person. I love it. And when I started listening to the podcast, I was like, you know, it's really refreshing to see um, one side, a very mischievous persona who's like, you know, self-aware, you know, absurdity in the social media space. And then behind that is like, these discussions that are like very emotionally honest about the significance of art within our lives and how that can be found at like every strata of what is like the most you know divine and what is the most debased forms of uh, mediums yeah my god you just flattered the fuck out of me that's like exactly like the mission of my show <laughs> so I'm, I'm really really quite touched to hear that it uh it, it registers correctly so Anyway, both I think this is a, a really wonderful confluence um, for the beginning of the end of the second season of I'm So Popular. This is the final stretch of the show before uh, we go into season three. And with the first with the first episode um, being kind of like a, a meeting of a, a lot of very important ideas of the podcast leading up to this point between um, some trash pop culture, true sublimity like Fogblaine just mentioned and divinity and i think it all comes to a head in this really heartbreaking and crushing kaidu pamu pamu album but before we get there i'm kind of curious to hear what both of your relationships to j-pop are because i've been listening to a lot of um old like tk stuff recently and uh been watching like some documentaries of like 90s stars and kind of just like sinking into, like, a lot of, like, the TK family, like, uh, mythos and everything, and I've been really, like, touched by the extreme, like, drama that the Japanese, like, pop music stage, like, produces in these, like, Grecian human epics that seem to occur, like, occur with all of their, all of their idols and figures, so it's been on my mind a lot more than recently, so I'm kind of curious what brought both of you into the world of Japanese pop music. Um... For me, it was 1998, video game, the JRPG Thousand Arms came out, and Ayumi Hamasaki had, I think it was our fifth single, Depend On You, as the intro for it. And so that's how what kind of got me into it. Um, and from there, it was like a bomb explosion. You know, it was like kind of the start of like the internet and like all these things being available um, to you. Whereas like now, I feel like the kids don't know how blessed they are to have all this stuff on streaming. Because mm -hmm. back then, like, girl, I was ordering shit from CD Japan, um, spending hundreds of dollars to import these these CDs. Um, 
And so, yeah, from IU, she opened me up to all the TK girls, uh, you know, TRF, everything pretty much um, from there. So she was really the person that, um, you know, brought me into it all. And don't talk shit on her because I feel like if you do, your ear is going to start hurting. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to um, be kinder towards IU recently because um, my, 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 Somebody in my life has uh, called attention to the fact that I'm a little aggressive on her, so I'm trying to like no, I'm trying to sand out my stamp impulses and leave her alone. But yeah, <laughs> what about you, Fogburn? How did you get into this horrible little universe? <laughs> I don't think um, I don't know if my story is as interesting uh, and you know romantic as what Stephen described. I wish I kind of had that relationship with with J-pop in a way, it's been more, um, we were talking about this before the show. It's like, because of the geographical circumstances I am in, it's, uh, it, finding, uh, Japanese pop penetrate through that cultural, um, borders is, is very, it's rare for the most part. So like, um, it's always usually been British or American stuff. Um, if it, makes its way over but then when it's japanese it's like it's usually through explicitly mainstream pipelines which is like what's fascinated me most about kpp's influence and stuff like that but most of the time for me it would be through like video games whether it's like you know shin megami tensei or you know ddr or square enix games like final fantasy and kingdom hearts like that's pretty much like my very enclosed view around j-pop at the time before stuff like youtube but then once that started being more popularized and proliferated then you would see like fan-made omvs of like animes and stuff set to uh j-pop and stuff like that and then um from there you kind of your palette kinds of get it gets a bit more expanded so in the last decade it's been more easier than now to get into it um so it's been like stuff for me it's like Monaco Yoshida and you know um all these other you know city pop stuff and then Yuama Harito and uh yeah I mean it's and perfume I mean we're going to talk about perfume at some point as well like I love perfume I think they're like one of the best rootbacks in ages and then you've got like you know the stuff that everybody knows like AK B48 and stuff like that so yeah that's pretty much it. No, that's wonderful. I mean, there is something that makes Japanese pop music, uh, especially if you got into it before, like, the streaming age, which was the case for me initially, was that you had to really work to, like, uncover these artists, and you had to really expose yourself to some of the most, like, unfriendly and awkward, like, internet spaces, um, like, J-pop forums. Even, like, the Twitter community has always been, like, kind of autistic and insane and so it's like there's never been a moment until streaming started where you didn't have to like really commit and like choose to want to like this kind of music in order to become a fan of it and that's always been really special to me is that everyone who like wants to become an aficionado like they can't just you know put on a stream and like say they know everything like you have to like do research and go through miles of internet garbage in order to find what you want or like spend like hundreds of dollars of like sending like these bizarre cds from you know other countries into your home and uh it makes the, both the listening experience and like the actual product of the music like 
that much more of like a, a glittering object and something like really powerful that you cultivate and uh i think that also is what like lends like such the such a grandiosity to me when i think about j-pop like in terms of like these female pop icons that they have not a single one of them doesn't have like some incredibly like compelling grecian ancient tragedy like just lurking in the distance like utada's mom like this faded like anka singer like leaping off the apartment building or like amino namie is like also like her mom like getting like brutally murdered in cold blood by another family member or like with tomo-chan and like her deep love for her producer that like defined the very aesthetics of her music just for them to like break up and have her be like publicly tortured by images of him with other people all of it i just think is so fascinating and godlike it's like looking at like mount olympus it is and, and kind of the the two like the top three like juggernauts like utada ayu and namie like utada's going blind evidently correct ayu's deaf and namie can't like even talk or sing anymore so it's just like the three are sitting here like a fucking ethan from uh situation it, it's just incredible and and you're correct like when you read the wikipedia's of pretty much any of the idols it is the craziest story you could ever think of absolutely yeah absolutely um i love the way you put it with like the grecian <laughs> tragedies because it's just a such a reoccurring um theme in throughout the whole j-pop industry and it's like you don't see this anywhere else in the world and that's just makes it all the more fascinating really and then um it's almost like that every there is a kind of um there's an, a self-awareness about it with uh with japanese people and how this sort of things play out recurringly um almost like it is mythological stories happening over and over again for them and they're really like there is an acknowledgement that it's like this is obviously terrible that people are like murdering each other and like jumping off high-rise buildings and going blind and all these crazy stories and uh, it's like on one hand it's like they would want to fix it but at the same time it would probably like take away a certain element of the the, the mythos or the mystique around this particular industry but um and it's also something that i don't think that they can get away from because it's like intuitively human human nature on like the grandest scale possible really yeah no it's, it's exactly that i i think that's wonderfully said and maybe it's something about the size of this country and how like intimate everyone has to be like the entire world like sometimes feels like it's compressed into like the subways of tokyo and just like how close everybody is like how easy it is to run into anyone like it makes it so that it's a little more difficult for people to like put on like a front or like some like kind of like delay of fame whereas like you can't imagine like just like running into like lady gaga somewhere because of like the expansive nature of the united states where like everything is like pulled apart and like stretched by like massive threads of land and then everyone just sequesters themselves like in like la and like new york and uh Meanwhile, like, in Japan, like, it feels like you really can just, like, encounter these people. So it's, like, their corporeal form is somehow, like, more real and 
more honest. So it's like all these like human dramas that keep unfolding and like these extreme narratives that become like a part of their like pop cultural role. It all just like feels so much more like strikingly present than anything I can think of for like Western music celebrities. Yeah, I think Western music celebrities come up with a mythos uh, about them that probably cannot be proven true. I mean, like, just off the top of my head, um, you know, Taylor Swift or Gaga, they have these kind of manufactured stories, like struggling artists, blah, 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 when their parents are like multimillionaires. So um, there's something a little bit more genuine um, in the East going on. Mm. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case, because when you're comparing, because that's what's really the most fascinating part of between when you're looking at J-pop is the immediate contrast to Western culture and how it does their version of pop stars and how those certain people rise to fame. And it is all manufactured. It's like it's been going on since, you know, the 1950s and the 1960s. It's like one of the best examples I remember um, was the the trogs in the 19. 60s early 1960s yeah and you know they would like put out this persona from the record label manufacturing it that they were like from australia and that they would wear like these zebra print suits or whatever and they'd be <laughs> from space banging on bongo drums or whatever but like um with the j-pop stuff it's um a lot of it is comes out of the the um historical context really of japan it's like because it's it's all coming out of post-World War II and it's all centered around the um, the the Japanese ideal of like working towards a collective good for the for the nation. Whether it's in 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 Western culture, it's completely different. It's it's just yeah, purely um, mostly capital driven and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, and then it just ends up being like this very long lineage of history of pop that like it just grows with every release and then enters into this and in, into their own subgenres and it's like the landscape so and talking about western um pop it's like it's so incredibly incestuous and overlapping and you know those modern practices of how fame is manufactured has been around since forever and now it's like the the net that's being cast onto culture itself is is so multifaceted and it's all about like getting the most out of out of nothing and it's there's a distinction i feel between the the pop stars that created their own law and it feels completely their own like you know the bowies and michael jackson's and all that and then you've got like yeah like the gagas and the taylor swifts and all that and it feels like there's a split of how it's um how it originates yeah and i you know i personally think that like lady gaga is like probably, like, the last, like, really, like, interesting, like, pop art tour that's, like, uh, come out of culture, and, like, uh, I think her, her early music is, like, super perverse and, like, poly and, and, and freakish and, uh, like, a really wonderful contribution to the world, and I, I, like, still can't believe that, like, Born This Way happened as, like, a pop cultural moment or whatever, but, like, she definitely is, like, you know, overpro- overproduced, like, to the point of, like, uh, simulacrum of herself there's like a a feedback loop of uh her creating herself in so many images that like the reality becomes uh buried uh behind so many layers that i mean it it becomes kind of like the postmodern point of it all but like we've been saying with j-pop like those layers just like aren't there because of like the japanese cultural mission and because of all of the 
context of the music industry. And so where we end up is like with these uh, pop stars who are like very vulnerable to human drama and narrative. And um, I think it's a great entrance into the album we're going to talk to today, which is Kairi Pamu Pamu's 2021 Candy Racer. So when this album came out, um, I hadn't thought about Caddy Pamu Pamu in maybe five years. I hadn't thought about her at all. <laughs> like, not at all. Um, but I guess we should probably explain, like, who she is a little bit before we get into the record, yeah? Yeah, what's, what's her government name? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it Kitty I have no idea. So she kind of started as a blogger and she was known in like the Harajuku like fashion scene mostly. Um, and the Harajuku fashion scene is like already kind of like a uh, postmodern joke of itself that's like come from the fallout of like Gwen Stefani where like people in Tokyo like understand Harajuku as like a fashionable place but like the kind of like kawaii like kind of, I hate saying that word by the way, but like that kind of like that kind of a huge, like, ribbon, like, kind of gyaru, like, sparkly, like, overstated girl thing was, like, has not been a trend for decades. Um, but then, in the Western perception, because of, like, Gwen Stefani, like, Harajuku, like, still exists in that way to the West. Um, and so, when Kyari Pamu Pamu kind of became fascinated with it as a fashion blogger and, like, a model when she was in her teens we're already, like, set up with, like, these, uh, like, unstable, like, wavering stilts that, like, she's put herself on in terms of, like, what she represents culturally. And kind of what she's still doing now. I mean, when we get into the album, we'll talk about kind of the videos and kind of what she's putting out there. You know, videos of her pretty much running away from the big red bow. Um, and everything she kind of, like, represented with Harajuku, so. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's, she definitely is, she's on those two stilts between the West and the East perpetually now. I think she's kind of put herself in a precarious position because, yeah, in the last five years, it's like she's kind of 
it felt like she's kind of fallen off a bit and it's 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 hard to really pin why exactly because it's like she it's like she hasn't been putting out content she definitely has but um it's almost like that surge of of um western interest that you know we typically tend to do when like something from especially from like eastern cultures comes over here we like gravitate to it and we latch onto it and we hold it real tight and we squeeze it and we just like drain everything it's good for and then it just dissipates really quickly but she's stuck around longer than most i would consider it's not like certain you know south korean acts that have come over here and then just came and went instantly um and i think a lot of that has to do with the 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 dialogue between her when she was coming up by being yeah being seen on the same stage as like Katy perry and gwen stefani and and lady gaga because she directly said those were her inspirations when she was making her debut around that time so like taking into the broader context of the interaction between nations she's like the perfect symbiosis between like mutual intelligibility between the east and west it ironically wrapped up in a nice little bow and <laughs> uh you know it's who's able to like transcend language for this like collective enjoyment of like the same type of you know commercial and hate to say it, kawaii interest and gyaru culture and all that um, but like beneath all that is, uh, I feel like a very sincere expression of art and like personability that packages itself in like a, a very conscious retelling of Japanese history, culture and motifs in, in a very like subconscious and accessible way for the audience so that anybody who's like foreign to this stuff can like really understand why um, these things feel important to Japanese people. But like, if it was done in a traditional way, it would probably like confuse or alienate those people because a lot of that has like historical context to it and, you know, potentially outdated practices. That's probably a little bit of like a, <laughs> a digression, but like, yeah. No, no, it, it's really important to understanding her because um, I think it was like maybe like 10 or 11 years ago. And what made her, you know, temporarily lightly famous in america was pom 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 which is this song of her in uh these little yellow shorts in the music video and like this little red shirt and an, an enormous bow on her head with like a candy cane stick on this like cgi stage like uh clopping around with like eyeballs floating and it's like kind of like the exact thing that westerners would kind of imagine when they're thinking of like wacky japanese people and their game shows and wow like harajuku like all of this kind of stuff but she like detonated it in a way in that song which is you know catchy to the end of the earth as well um but she like has both like the kind of easy approximation of the culture that she like leans on but there's definitely like you said like a very like sincere and intelligent like motivation there and it it feels m deeply more complicated than the kind of what you actually might be noticing on your first listen but because it has like that cute little like onomatopoeia of like pom 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 which has like no meaning at all like it makes it so that like westerners like get that like s same kind of like sugar rush of like that like biting into some candy or something and it's like the delicious like little like slice of a uh, what they want like japanese culture to look like uh and they get that where other audiences at the same time are like finding like uh 
these, like, older, like, historical references and, like, something kind of more sinister happening in the background. Yeah, I, I think that, like, what kind of happens with her is the record label doesn't know how to, like, bring her over to the West, and that's why she ultimately got dropped from her record label. Um, I think she started her own label now. Um, but they just wanted to make it, like... I don't think they understand how they even bring a J-pop artist over here. They failed miserably with Utada. It's awful. Um, when they didn't really have to do much. They don't have to do anything. Utada's albums like consistently chart here. Um, her songs do as well, like on iTunes and stuff. Like There's no changing that you need to do. So I've always just felt so perplexed because I feel like Utada could be like very, extremely popular in America. Mm-hmm. And they bring her over here with that awful song, like, uh, You're Easy Breeze. And I'm Japanese yeah. Because <laughs> they needed to, like, show, like, hey, she's Japanese. It's just awful. It's like, you didn't have to do that. Like, you could have even just brought her over with her same damn song she already had, because they're a hit. Like, hits just don't not become hits. So it, I feel like that's what they, they, like, cannot understand what they do. They're like, oh, we'll bring you to Coachella, as if that means anything. You know, it's just like Coachella is not like a place where like new artists are made. Like back when maybe like Madonna did it, she was the first person that was like, you know, the biggest name to ever do Coachella. But now it's all like top tier acts. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to get discovered and bam, like just put the bitch on the VMAs. Like I don't understand what, like what, you know, what the thing is. So (laughs) yeah, what a tangent, but. No, there, I mean, no, there's always been like a, a, a failure. Yeah. You're so right. Yeah. And they don't have to be. No. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really good point. Um, it's it's like a real square pegs and round holes type situation where, and it's also, I think in, in Kyrie's case, it's like a lot of it has to do with the right place at the right time um, because of like where Harajuku fashion culture was going and then you had like the rise of the internet and i know like japanese um pop music has been like very big on their like uh video production because it's so uh gloss glossy and like completely you know you've got all the sequin dresses and these big grandiose stages on their their television acts but when she did pon 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 it was it was um it was done in a completely i would say a completely different way and then how most people discovered her was through youtube and that like video alone had like 180 million views it was massive like and it just transcended it exploded everywhere um and it's because it it seems so effortless compared to uh like steven said like the ones where they just force them in and be like look at how japanese she is and it's like nobody's going to gravitate to that because they're japanese people already if people are going to be interested in japanese stuff they're already interested you know so at least with um Kyari's case, it's like there was that completely out there visual element to it where it was Yeah, I mean it was like a little bit of a perversion of of Japanese stuff being like, look at how kawaii things are and, and all that. But um yeah, underneath it all is, is definitely something there's something else going on there. I think that's why people stayed. No, absolutely. And I mean, um that video kind of like set her on like the motion of like what her career would be uh doing for like it's it's first like seven years or so where she kind of like did um not necessarily imitations but like very similar kind of 
music with like the, the same visual motifs for most of her music where she does like this like overstated like cute kind of thing um lots of like toy box noises and like children's <laughs> motifs and stuff and it's like it's um so like saturn that it, it i was kind of like embarrassed to like be into her and i always like kind of considered her to be like basic i'm like this isn't like j-pop when i was like first like hearing her I'm, like this is like this is not what people listen to and if you told like if you tell continue to tell japanese people now you're like oh kiari pami pami or they're like what like really like <laughs> okay like uh and i i said to one of my co-workers before i was like i think probably one of the japanese singers that americans know best is like kiari pami pami and she was shocked and horrified and she like could not believe it because um despite like the success of like pom 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 um and uh i i think that one song like hatachi when which is like a oh i'm turning 20 song you know and it gets like sung at karaoke a lot she really like never like had like a true like foothold in this country as like a absolute like pop icon or something and despite like the her producer who we'll talk quite a bit about i think nakata yasutaka he has immaculate production for her and they it's a very like sustained single kind of image with like this like toy like kawaii like children stuff despite all of it like she never really like had like a complete like foot on the ground in her own country yeah um my i was gonna say my downstairs neighbor um is from japan and she like has heard me being a, a flouncing faggot several nights <laughs> and blasting you know j-pop and you know one day she was like we like listening to and i'm like, telling her you know Chara, Namie, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then i was like and i also like kiari pami pamio and she like paused and then she was like who and i said it again and then she just started laughing and i was just like oh, okay like i get it so i guess that like that is the conception <laughs> of her <laughs> That's so shocking to hear. I didn't really expect that. I thought she would at least be like somewhat, at least like a little bit respected and acknowledged in Japan because she's been around for like ages. Um, but like, you know, in the it, same problem is what she's got there. It's like over in the West, it's like, again, no real foothold because of how like, you know, we just pick up new artists all the time and be like, I don't want to play with you anymore. And then we just go on to the next thing. And, um, yeah, it's it's really shocking to hear. I was I definitely felt the same way as uh, you, Chichi, with like how I was felt like semi embarrassed to listen to it. I was like, this is good, but I can't talk to anybody about this, and like I don't think I ever did really until today. <laughs> yeah, so. no, I mean I have been desperate to have like a serious conversation about her because um like the most I ever got was like when that EP with like a pom 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 and like cherry bon bon and like all of that stuff like came out. Um, my friend and I like listened to it a lot together and uh, it was like kind of like our dirty secret that we shared. And like now that Candy Racer is here and like I can't stop listening to it and like trying to get other people to, everyone is like haunted by her shadow of like the kind of like embarrassing, like childish, like like overly sweet music that she like, has been like known for throughout her whole career and um i just think it's so fascinating that this woman like made that one song pom 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 that became so enormous and like became such a signifier for her that she has been like living 
under its, like, crushing weight forever as she's, like, being ripped apart by, like, two cultures, like, floating in the ether without, like, (laughs) any, like, solid ground to stand on in either as, like, space is, like, slowly pulling her image apart. And most artists that would encounter this kind of stress in their career would succumb immediately and drop off the map. But not so for Kari Pamu Pamu. That's right. <laughs> because she made fucking Candy Racer. When Candy Racer came out in 2021, I feel like Kari Pami Pami was, like, completely out of the conversation. She'd been releasing, like, singles from this album from, like, a year and a half previously, as, like, a lot of Japanese artists do with their records. I think Utada's been releasing singles for her new album for two years now. But, like, um, Kari Pami Pami was, like, totally out of the conversation. Uh, she had been just recently dropped by her label... And her and her pretty big-name producer, Nakata, they carried on and decided to keep releasing music, despite the fact that there seemed to be very little market demand for her. And this album that she put out last year is easily my favorite pop record of the year, and is despondent and paralyzed with fear, and yet insistent with strength and... um, a truly Nietzschean will to power of, like, forcing your own image into the world and creating reality with your own ego as opposed to letting it be victim to the world around you. So I'm curious as to what your both uh, initial impressions were to this and, like, kind of how you got re-exposed to Miss Pamu Pamu. Um, so I, I was keeping up with her post japan U singles like gum girl um and what else was released before that and, and it was kind of kind of doing this she was kind of doing the same thing in japan i thought the sound was like kind of the same a little bit more like 90s feel to it um with like more traditional instruments with like kind of edm beats kind of in the and the same vein of um 
Harajuku Yohoi, that song that she did, mm-hmm. um, Cameo. And then in September, that song Jumping Up was just released like without any kind of fanfare, or any type of marketing. And it just went on my Spotify and I played it. And I was just like literally in gay panic. <laughs> I think I had audible like gay like gasp when I like heard it. And I was just like, this is the best thing. This is like a, a fucking like TRF song from the 90s. Like it was that like, it was something I haven't heard from Nakata in like forever. I was like, finally, after like so much like kind of, I don't know, dreadful perfume songs that he had done where he just feels very uninspired. This came out of nowhere. And then I was like fucking freaking out about it on Twitter and like silence, crickets, like nothing. Um, and I think it was not until like the album actually came out a month later in October that I saw like you started talking about it, Zach. And I was like, okay, like he gets it, like good. Like, because I was just like, I felt like I was just alone. Like just being like, what the fuck? Why is nobody talking about this? Because sonically it's like probably the most interesting thing that Nikata has done in like five years. Oh, for sure. And the gay panic is so real with this album because when I put it on in my earbuds, because I had listened to, um, I think, I think Candy Racer and seen the music video and I thought it was, you know, okay at first. Um, and, you know, I was kind of interested with what she was doing with that video. But then when I put the album on from start to end in my apartment, I got possessed by the spirit of wig and twirl, which is a reoccurring theme of the show. Is like the mysterious, <laughs> like, sublim- like, sublimity of wig, cunt, leg, and twirl. And I heard it happen. And it's like the, the feeling of twirl is when you as a gay person are so possessed by a piece of art that it eliminates the entire world around you and forces you into a fantasy of mirrors. And you're suddenly just spinning around in a tornado. And like this album like immediately kicked into me and I became fearfully obsessed with it in the same way that I did the Nudu Nudu Shimasenka video um, from last year that I talked about with Logo, and I listened to the album, I think maybe between 30 and 40 times in the first week it came out. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jumping Up was my number one played song of 2021 on my Spotify Rewind. I listened to it, like, over, like, 151 times, like a crackhead. (laughs) Not only that song, but, like, when the Dompa drop dropped as well, like, I was trans, like, I left the world, and I was in a, a dark room at, like, the cock in the Lower East Side, fucking, like, hopping poppers. Like, the shit was just, like, I, I was just, like, where did this come from? It was just, like, Nakata hasn't, hasn't done anything like this in so long, and it was, like, it was, like, dirty house shit. Mm-hmm. So I was just, like, so ecstatic with like she's doing this now okay like we check in for miss cameo absolutely Fogbrain, how did you get into this when there was nothing but silence in the air how did how did you enter this universe um i think i think i was just really really like blessed by the algorithm when this eventually dropped in october because it just sort of like appeared as if God himself dropped it on my timeline and thought, like, this is what you need for this year. It's like Donda and 
and this album, I was like, this is exactly what I needed. And then it's like, yeah, that with what nakata has been putting out, it's like obviously his strongest points have been from like the sort of late mid two thousands up until like the early twenty um, tens was like his strongest output. And then it's just kind of been like, you know, he's been doing his stuff with Capsule for um, the meanwhile, and it's been like, you know, okay. And um, it's almost like he's like resurged with all this like new reinvigorated creative energy for this album. And then, and then like the first time I threw it on, I was like, I can't believe this is where it's at now. It's like, it's gone from the toy box, you know, cutesy type kind of style, which is still like there to some extent. But from this album, it was like, I can't believe this is like, she's going in this direction. And it's mm-hmm. like, I, I wanted this so badly to be like, okay, she, she does have to reinvent herself. Like it felt like a necessity really. And um, the sound behind that, it, it just feels like Nakata's fully in the background, like supporting her with like, you know, flag all up in the air being like, this is where we're going from now. I'm going to like lift you up and, and reinvigorate you into this brand new style because it's like, this is what, this is what you need. This is what I need. And it just feels like a beautiful, beautiful relationship really. Yeah. Absolutely. My God. I mean, because, you know, we touched on, like, how, like, Cardi got sucked into the void by, like, her, the way that she set up, like, her career and, like, what happened to her with Pom Pom Pom. But, like, it's very necessary as well to, like, state that, like, Nakata, like, her long-term producer also had, like, wrecked his career, basically, as well. And he went, like you said, Stephen, from being, like, a really powerful producer, like, a really interesting, like, force in in pop culture like with his early stuff with capsule which is like still wonderful music and the initial like run with perfume he like had a a point of view and a really interesting one but like something like happened like in the 2010s where his music just became like really like generic kind of like edm stuff with like absolutely like no touch of individuality it felt like it was produced like by youtube like to be like generic background music in a club scene and like the it was especially terrible with capsule um who got really horrible for a run of like four albums and uh they ended up doing something kind of interesting with caps lock but like that was about it and uh then perfume got like unbearably bad as well um and when I, I had the kind of written him off completely as, like, kind of, like, a hack at this point. I was, like, you know, he had, like, a moment of originality, but, like, now he just is shoveling out the most, like, inane garbage where he had, like, kind of been responsible for, like, the first idea of, like, PC music or, like, hyperpop or whatever. Like, his music originally had kind of been the the frame for it and by the time like the west had like caught up like he was like reverting back into like generic garbage so the fact that he comes onto this album with such like a reinvigorated point of view and an extremely like strong like well-crafted like kind of like soundscape to him it it really is like a perfect confluence of like Caddy like reinventing herself while he is also like reinstating himself and it feels like a really enormous like Sisyphean like struggle uphill of these like two individuals like caught in the vortex of pop culture right um I feel like what ruined him was fucking dubstep mm-hmm. fucking god like that's when perfume got really bad because I mean you listen to a song like spring of life 
by Perfume. Like, it has these insane fucking, like, Daft Punk riffs and, like, just layered techno on it. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, two years later, he's making, like, the most generic, like you said, YouTube fucking song for them. Um, and then when this came on, like, just just the first, like, fucking, like, 10 seconds of Candy Racer, you're, like, already in a different era, a different, like, whole entire, like, universe that he, like, has come up with and finally has left behind the, like, the awfulness of the late 2010, like, dubstep movement. Mm-hmm. I think he already sounds great in EDM. Um, and this particular, like, 90s kind of, uh, God, it's even, like, it's like Venga Boys almost mm-hmm. in, some, in some moment. But it, it fits her, and it's perfect. And, um, yeah, he just really, I don't know, he really surprised me with this one. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was something about the 2010s particularly the the early to mid 2010s that I thought was like a fucking wasteland for music electronically around that time. It was just the worst. It's like, I think it was because EDM culture was like, uh, you know, blowing up big time. And it was, yeah, it was all about the dubstep and like massive festivals that people were putting on. And then it was, it it's, it's like the whole sound escaped the club scene and then out into the broader world. And then it just became like, perverted and sanitized and just became lifeless it was dead and then it wasn't until uh, around i think 2018 when things started to turn the corner a bit but now it's like we feel like we're entering into something that is is definitely reinventing itself not just with like what nakata does but with also like other electronic acts as well like i think the stuff that you know one of tricks point never's putting out is like amazing as well and um yeah it's just it just feels like there's something going on in that space that feels, um, yeah, it, it, it is like Sisyphean. It's coming back up to push the boulder again in a much more like inspired way rather than like the hopeless <laughs> dredges sort of way that it used to be beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, the boulder will inevitably come plummeting back down again. Like there's, of course, like it's going to reach its point, but it's nice to be pushing it up instead of like at the base of the, you know, the lava pit, you know, and um, I, all of these, like, elements together of, like, the dead 2010s, which is, like, one of the worst eras for art in, you know, probably the last, like, hundred years, um, and to oh, yeah. actually see, like, these two people who are, like, probably, like, the lowest of their whole careers, like, come together to, like, really create something that is unique to their points of view and individualistic and, like, perverted to, like, this, like, 90s, like, fascination. It's really for refreshing and touching. So I think we should probably go... Th- I can talk about, I think, every track on here. So I think we can go go through it all. And the first song on here is De Ba Yashi Nisen Niju Ichina. Uh, and this is uh, the uh, kind of signature that she's done on every album, which is that she does a, a song at the very beginning where she just says her name over and over again. But where this kind of changes the course of things is it begins with like this like sucking noise it's like the electronic like vacuum turns on and like immediately like annihilates all of her career so when she starts like reciting her name over and over again over like this really overstated electronic music uh it like feels like she has just like been reduced to nothing and then like exploded back into a, a complete like new vision 
Mm. Yeah, that's how I felt about it. It was like definitely felt from the outset. It was like a mission statement with like the building horns and like these chanting sort of like electronic sounds in the background. And then it's like, you know, it gets into these massive drums. And then by the moment it goes like, you know, you know it's like, pump you, pump you. and then it just explodes into this noise. And that's when you're like, you're, you're in, you like the rocket has been strapped on your back and you're like, I'm going, I'm leaving planet earth for now. I'm going into the stratosphere at like hyper speed. And it just feels like it feels fucking amazing. It's almost like Gabba style in a way and like hard bass. It's really, it's really out there. And it's definitely like, it hits you. Um, unlike anything else that she's done previously. Yeah, and, like, that last bit of this song where it's, like, into full, like, electronic production mode and just, like, firing on all axles. Like, I definitely have, like, a little bit of a problem with, like, PC music and hyperpop as, like, a concept these days. Like, I think the idea has been so run into the ground that I just can't care to, like, think about it anymore. And it's, like, refreshing to see, like, um... Um you know, all of the producers, like, A.G. Cook, like, they're also beginning to recognize that and, like, produce stuff without, like, the sheen of irony and, like, overproduced kind of thing, especially with, like, A.G. Cook's, like, stuff with uh, Utada recently, which is, like, horrifyingly mature for him. And uh, I find that, like, this is the most recent, like, evocation of hyperpop and, like, overstated extreme electronic music that's, like, uh, so like, insistent on itself that it could almost become a joke, that like, this is the only time in, in recent memory I've heard anything like that that didn't, like, make me cringe and, like, actually, like, produced the original sensation that, like, the original PC Music Collection did, which is, like, to find, like, a strange, like, power and inertia forward, like, through, like, these kind of, like, outdated, like, modes of music. Yeah, I, I really don't, I'm not a big fan of like Piper Pop, honestly, for where it is right now. I think it's like, I don't know, I could probably like rant about it a bit because like it, you know, commonly gets associated with with Harajuku culture as well and like the, the kawaii sensibilities in, in the Eastern sense. And in the Western sense, it's really something, it's different. It's like, it's got like this sinister subtext to it or something. Like it doesn't really make sense only if it's viewed through like this hyper-corporate consumerist lens to me where it's being twisted into for the lesser you know worser acts it's like it, it becomes like this tim burton-esque hot topic version of of spooky and it's yes, like other totally. hyper-pop artists do like a evil version where they're like being you know cutesy by contrasting these bright pastel colors and basic geometry fragmented with these like extreme shapes and then it's like on top of that extreme violence, satanic imagery, it's like it's like when Poppy blew up, and I was like, "I hate this. this is the oh. worst thing." Yes. Yeah, and it's it's funny because like they even recognize this like instinct. Like I think like back in like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, and. Nakata produced the worst song of his career, which is a collaboration between Kari Pami Pamu and Charlie XCX. And I don't remember oh, yeah. what it's called, but it's fucking terrible and it's embarrassing to hear. And so when you actually like see them like, you know, doing the PC music thing, you see how it like falls apart completely. And that's why it's so refreshing to like hear them kind of like reclaim it out of like the swamp of how Westerners think of Harajuku and like create something like full of, you know, inertia and power. And it leads into 
Candy Racer, which is such a special song on this record. Sorry. Uh, oh, well, <laughs> sorry, I was like, I was thinking he was gonna, he was gonna talk. Um, but yeah, this was the song where I was just like, in the even the first five seconds, I was just, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, we're doing this like '90s TRF um, sound that feels very familiar, but also feels like very new. Mm-hmm. Heard a sound like this in like. A long time. Um, so, I don't know, this song is like pure adrenaline um, and has the classic kind of Kiari like melody on it of just, you know, her usual vocal delivery. But it's also just at the same time, it's going at 180 miles an hour and it is just relentless and it sets you up for, um, you know, something, an album of hers that's like completely different from any of her other work. So. Right. Yeah. Um, I I think back to when uh, Chi-Chi was talking about it on Twitter and there was like the, you posted the video of like riding on the motorcycle at a hundred miles an hour, just going down the highway at like light speed. And I was thinking of like the same sort of thing. It was like, I was thinking of like initial D in the 1990s drifting scene in Japan. And it's just like getting in the car, doing burnouts and just going like, going full bore at it and it's like yeah it's i love it so much it's um there's something about the first half of the album that feels like it is trying to um put forth to you like is this is this what you really want because this is what we want and then the second half of the album feels a lot more like um going back towards what her sound traditionally is not for like you know not in any sort of derogatory sense because there's definitely still some like really um, new uh, sort of like innovations going on in there but like the um, these opening first couple of tracks and like I love it when like because the concept of the album to a lot of people is like dead and to me not so I love throwing on an album in its entirety for what mm-hmm. it's worth and then when you listen to a really good album and then it gets off on it's like you know first three track runway and it's just like bang 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 really awesome stuff to start off with and it's it um it really like envelops you and the experience and the atmosphere of what the album is trying to like convey to you. Yeah, that's so right. And I mean, especially when you listen to it, like uh, sequentially as is intended in, in the album form, like this, like plus like, plus, like uh, Debayashi at the very beginning, it's like when you go from that to this, like you feel like an even greater like surge of the inertia here. And um, lyrically, like she's addressing what at first seems to be what she has been doing since the very beginning of her career. She must have, like, 70 songs with the word candy in the title, or, like, bonbon, or, you know, like, sweets, or, like, sweetie, or, you know, that kind of thing. And so you hear her just, like, intoning over, like, this, like, really, like, barreling forward, like, 90s, like, house kind of beat thing, just, like, saying candy racer. And it seems, like, kind of, like, haunted in some way and it only kind of like makes sense when like you hear her say she's like like any egg on night it's like or any and night it's like there is no picture in the picture and she's talking about like the creation of like these paintings and these images and that there's like nothing inside of them as she's like 
going on and on about like this candy candy racer sweet sweet Tokyo and then she just like looks you dead in the eye and says there's nothing here yeah like it makes a lot more sense especially when you pair that with the music video that came out with it and I think like part of the package of enjoying her work is is following along with like the 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 arcal storytelling that she's putting forth in her music videos and in this one she's like you know dressed up as like a a little <laughs> ghost in this like floral dress like um levitating around this haunted house spooking out white boys by pulling down their pants and being like all like cutesy and funny and all that and talking about candy it's i love it it's like a scooby-doo chase i thought and uh it was really creative yeah and it totally fits with like what this like song is saying like there's nothing in the picture like she is like running away like from like this enormous like bow and like tormenting like westerners like with like the ghost of her image it's like this is like so daring for someone whose like career is like washed up and over to like be like revisiting like her own role in pop culture in such a way where she's like literally like haunting these like white people and has been like reduced there's like an, an uncanny quality to the video where it like repeats itself over and over again and like it'll have like the same shot repeated like five times of her opening a door or something and um it, it seems like kind of like uh simple at first but like when you really like think about like the lyrics and like in the context of like where she is in her professional journey like it does become like this like phantasmal like assault of like the dead ghost of an artist like coming back to like try to retain its existence and revisit it i think it's so fascinating right even the kind of like way in the video that the quality starts getting worse and worse like you can barely see images at it it just kind of like to me, it kind of speaks to even, like, the video of Hong Kong, which, like, is not in 4K HD. It look, looks like shit, um, <laughs> like, now. And so it's just kind of like, you know, the ghost of her is coming um, to have the worst quality. <laughs> like, um, but no, it's just, like, I'm just so impressed for her for actually even getting the budget to even, like, do a video for this because it's just insane to me that like she's just pressing through and actually still creating art and saying something interesting absolutely it's a really a testament to spirit when you are like a flop artist like at this point in her career and like she still has enough money to like she finds a way to like secure the finances for this and then does something interesting with it and um from candy racer and this like uh increasingly like uh, dreadful like postmodernism that she's touching on like she goes like right into the most like surreal song on the album which is Dodonpa and this is like the most I don't even know what to say this is like by far like the most like surreal like psychedelic like revisitation of herself that like feels like nothing else she's ever done and is so striking and bizarre in the context of her career um, when I listened to it originally, um, the song I thought about was Party Maker from Perfume. Uh-huh. But, you know, kind of like 10-minute long, Nakata, like, just going off in some kind of, like, you know, rave situation. But this song is just, like, this one is going to age so much better because Party Maker aged like milk. Um, this one is just, like, it's filthy. It's, like... 
and, and just Kiari saying just random fucking things. I mean, like, it just seems so, like, current and now. And just the sound, like, I don't know, I've been listening to it, like, on repeat for so long that, like, it still sounds really, really fucking good. Especially, like, halfway through when those little, like, bass, like, intonations, like, come through. Ugh, I just, you know, there's not, there's not words to describe it. It is, it is just um, gay panic. Yep. Yeah, this is like straight up like 1 a.m. or actually 3 a.m. in the club, dance track, rolling on like fucking Molly going nuts, to listening to some music like you've never heard in your entire life. And you're just like, I can't believe this is real right now. And it's like the best thing since like your first orgasm or whatever it is. And it's incredible because like she like completely forsakes her ego. Like the, the cute thing is gone. There's like no trace of like her as a human because all she's saying is like the dompa which is like the sound of like banging and like there's like no words in this at all she just is like she's just like saying syllables like her voice is like merely like an instrument and it's really interesting to see her like submit her like perspective and like her subjectivity into just like making mouth noises for this like ridiculous propulsive like poppers track Right. Oh my god, it's yeah, it's like one of those poppers like training like porn videos or something. Oh the gooning videos or whatever. Yeah, it's like you put Dodompa <laughs> in the back of that and see what happens to your gay brain. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> yeah, you really touched on something I thought was interesting was like how she just like dissolves herself into the music itself and it becomes like this this unity between you know what Nakata's doing and what she's doing and it like it reinforces the whole like theme of the album of like collaboration and and sort of like pulling yourself up by your boots like it's very inspiring in this like weird way um it when i think about it it's like i don't know this is a bit conclusive but it like it does feel like yeah it's like this pagliacci type lamentation of like not being taken seriously but at the same time like being fun playful and all that and then um yeah just not being seen as the the same artist perpetually and obviously there's there's definitely stuff later on in the album that uh reinforces that way more but uh, when it just like dissolves into this like noise of uh of um phenomes whatever you call it it's just um and then it's like you know euro dance disco it's a bit of marimba and acid house it's really like a bit of everything that kind of like speaks to what um Nakata's whole mission statement is these days and what he kind of has always talked about when you listen to him in interviews it's about like being being ahead of everybody else and you know the, the fact that it's literally got a drop in it and it doesn't feel like it's some dubstep piece of shit um is is very refreshing to hear and it, it definitely will uh, I agree with Stephen it's going to age beautifully I think yeah I can't wait to put this on like anywhere like I want to hear this song in public like I mean it's unfortunate because, like, to play a like a Pamu Pamu song at the club like seems like a like a foreign kind of like sin. Like it feels like taboo to like do it, and yet like she is really daring you to with this song, and like I I can't wait for the opportunity to. And um, the next track that this goes into is, uh, I think my favorite song on the album, which is Kamai Tachi, and this is this is kind of where it begins to implant like one of the album's like great other themes which is like pulling on 
like Japanese like instrumentation and like uh, ancient myth from the country and devoting it once again to a very unique mission that she and the Cutler are sharing on this record. Um, and the album title of course like refers to like a an ancient yokai of like these like fox like these foxes that would like uh fly through the air and then slice your back up with their like uh razor arms basically and uh the there's kind of like that theme um along with uh probably the more well-known like a japanese myth which is that you and your true love are like connected by a single red string that are tied to your pinky fingers together. So um, the overall image of, of this song is, like, her in, like, a, like, barren Japanese, like, wilderness landscape, like, being slashed at by foxes uh, with razors for arms as she's, like, clinging to, like, the true love strung to her pinky, trying not to get it slashed. So I'm, I'm curious what both of you thought about this song. Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, it's like the, the song has like this sense of like longing to it, you know, remi mm. reminiscing on love and thinking that like somewhere out there is is her soulmate and maybe in a way that's like maybe Nakata's or soulmate. Maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's somebody who's just like her. And it's like a song where it's about like, she's you know, she's building herself back up and, and like marching along. And then there's like all these underlying uh, feelings to it. And then when you wrap that up into the, like this whole... Um, you know, uh, Chinese mythological concept about the red string and like, you know, um, soulmates and destined love and all this sort of stuff. Um, it kind of speaks to already something that's already established in her uh, other work where it's a, a deep respect for um, the Japanese mythology or Eastern mythology and cultural tra traditions and beliefs. And it's all done in talking about the music video for a bit. It's like done in that kabuki theater style that she's always kind of like flirted with but this time it seems a lot more like upfront and out there and it's um it kind of yeah it, it goes into the whole uh fascination that the japanese seem to have from what i perceive as like the that all their relationships are predestined you know and that people are always like connected by this perpetual thread that has a important story to each other um destined to meet you know a certain situation regardless of time and you know what talking about what a true love even is and you know maybe it's that kind of song that just about everybody um can relate to as well and um i like i one thing to know i thought it was pretty funny how she was like bald in the video and <laughs> references like kami kiri with like the hair cutting it um the creature had come out of nowhere and like just cut people's hair without them noticing and and taking on the forms of a fox and stuff and it's it's yeah, it's a uh, it's really it's really beautiful. I thought, and it's it probably is. one of my favorites on the album as well. Yeah, it, it's the best video um, I think she did for this album. Um, and Sonic, I was just so happy that she's doing like a, a goddamn para para song. Um, it's just like the level of just like nineties TK. Uh, type production on this. I just think, like, I don't know. Nakata was on something um, with the whole production on this album. Just It, it just hit me in a, in a place where um, it, it just reminded me of all the music I really grew up with and loved. And, um, yeah. 
Yeah, because, like, the TK stuff that makes him so special is that, like, um, even as, like, most of his artists are, like, not writing their own lyrics and are kind of, like, divorced from, like, the emotional substance of, like, what he's writing about, he, like, can fashion his um, singers into, like, these, like, really beautiful channels for uh, these deep feelings of longing and uh, pain and all of his best stuff, especially with, like, Tomo-chan on, like, uh all over her career basically and then like Amuro when you think of stuff like Never End and everything like some of her most meaningful movement it's like all of that like pulls on like these enormous human feelings that are like both so you know general and generally experienced by the public but at the same time like so specifically stated and with this song it's really beautiful and moving to see like Kari Pamu Pamu, like this like candy, like, you know, plastic, you know, pops or whatever, like reach for the these enormous like feelings of like love and endurance and perseverance to finding something that makes like life worth living for in the shape of love by means of like ancient like Japanese and Chinese myth. And she does it in the same way that somehow YMO has always managed to do it as well with, like, their... I was going to say the same thing, yes. <laughs> yeah, this is the, the moment that, like, she kind of, like, reaches, like, YMO levels of, like, postmodern, like, East Asian genius of, like, being able to touch upon, like, the corny cultural melt that I've brought up a lot of, like, the way that the Asian culture as a whole kind of, like, lumps into some kind of soup for Americans. And then reaching into that, like gunky slimy glop and then pulling it out all this like cliche and like stereotype and to actualize it into something moving it's so incredible to like witness and it's so propulsive i just like can't get over this fucking song that was such a beautiful explanation of it that i, w- I couldn't have put it any better really <laughs> it's like i when i was listening to it i instantly did think of ymo because it had like you know those integrations between like synths and xylophones sort of sounds in there. And, um, you know, the mixture between like traditional Japanese wooden ish- instruments and, you know, the electronic stuff. Um, and it, li- it like literally has like the same stereotypical, like Japanese Asian chopsticks. Tune, the like, chopsticks. Da, 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 yeah. Which like YMO did on their first album. And it just feels like a, a um, kind of like a, a, a subconscious, recalling of of that kind of like motif totally i mean yeah it's funny because like uh this has been like a reoccurring element of like season two is like uh like japanese like stereotype both of like like american stereotypes of japan as well as like japanese stereotypes of america and like the chopsticks like that endless haunting melody that's going to just like run through the course of history when like the the orient comes up in the minds of like westerners i just am so thrilled that like people can like notice like that endless motif that's been like haunting the universe like since the 1920s and then turn it into this moving song about persevering and finding love like no matter like what's going to happen to you and uh and is is it even possible for an american to like do something like this like do we even like have like when I think about, like, Rina Sawayama or something, like, touching on stereotypes to, like, say something, it becomes, like, really corny and, like, embarrassing. No. <laughs> no, it isn't, because it's such a melting pot in the West that, and, and also that level of, like, 
um, humility and introspection is not something that is really like in, in good supply of with people these days, particularly with like musical artists and all that. It's like at most they kind of just like play around with like the perceptions of who they are as an artist. And then they kind of like put that back on the audience in like this very antagonistic sort of way. But in, in, at least in, in Chiari's position, it, it, it feels like she's re recontextualizing it and making it into something that's uniquely and intrinsically her own. And then um, kind of taking those, yeah, those like stereotypical elements and then kind of playing with it in a very like, it's a very harmless sort of way. It, as opposed to like Westerners who would do it in like this very like, I'm offended by this and I'm <laughs> going to make sure that you're also offended with me on this. And it's just like, it just feels like so, it, it feels like vitriolic. It's, it's, yeah. Oh, beautifully said. I mean, it's so special too that like, um, considering like what happened to her with Pon 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 where like she accidentally became like a human chopsticks melody. Like she like herself like became like that stereotyped symbol, like for them to, for her to go back and revisit it. I just, it's incredible. So we can go on to the next song, which is, uh, let's see, Genten Kaihi. Genten Kaihi. Um, what do you all think about this track, Steven? This is her, like, PS the Resistance. Like, I'm, you know, um, you know, she's like, I, the whole video is just, like, so symbolic of what she's doing with this album. And just, like, her running away from the big bow. Um, you know, I'm running away from, like, my origins, basically. Um, I feel like this is, like, the, like, the main standing point of the album and where everything else kind of, like, originates from, around for her. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the, the fact that this sits kind of, like, in the middle of this album feels very intentional to me because it's, like, it's a... And it's also deliberate in the fact that it sounds like a song that would have come off one of her first two albums. And the whole, like, you know, meaning behind Genten Kai is, like, to go back to basics and, you know, Kai meaning, meaning to, like, avoid or dodge something. And she's trying to, like, get away from... And also in the video, there's, like, the other visual motifs that she would have in her previous albums, which is, like, monster teeth, eyeballs, toys, crowns, plushy animals, candy... And it's all, you know, encapsulated by the bow, which is like her most iconographic image that she's practically all that she's known for. And it's like the song itself is it's her trying to say, like, look, I'm going I'm going back to what I know best about me personally. And I'm also not gonna forget where I came from, but at the same time it's like I I have to move on. I, otherwise I'll be and it's like in the video, she'll just be on this treadmill looping over and over again perpetually and it's like she can't in order to break free from this like <laughs> this sort of uh imprisonment bond between being caught between east and west like this she has to kind of set her own path forward and um i think the whole song is like a summary of that really yeah i mean what the fuck? Like, he, we have, like, this idol girl, like, basically just, like, on a stage, like, singing, avoid the origin, avoid the origin, and, like, it's, like, callback to, like, what she was doing originally. It feels very special. And, um, the lyrics, when they're translated, are especially beautiful, and there's a, a quality that always, like, brings, 
the American eye into, um, you know, Japanese music, which is that the translations read very metaphysically because of the way that the Japanese language translates. So lots of people think that, like, Japanese music is, like, way more, like, meaningful than, like, American music because of, like, the way that it sounds when it's translated. And this isn't, like... It's not totally untrue. There's absolutely, like, a greater degree of, like, uh, self-criticism and, like, more existentialism. But it's, like, more like a nature of the language. But nonetheless, it's very delightful for, like, the foreign eye to read. Because they have, uh, in one translation, it, it writes, People write their own notes, a story that will color the era. The same words, even the same scenery. A balance that will gradually change in meaning. This is incredible for some pop girl. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, the translation, everything sounds like fucking Rilke. And, like, and there are so many, like, J-pop stands that are like, oh, I, like, you know, especially with Utada, they're like, oh, oh. yeah. Like, her English lyrics are, like, awful, but her Japanese ones, oh, like, blah, blah. And I'm like, they're the same. Mm-hmm. You know, like, please stop. But um, I thought it was very, like, charming. I read an interview about her, like, filming the video for this. And she was just being like, oh, we put a lot of time into it. And it was really hard, the, like, scene of me running through the forest because it was really hot. And then you watch the, <laughs> the video, and she's, like, running through the forest for, like, five seconds, just, like, running up the hill. And I was just like, oh, okay, oh, okay. Yeah, I love that she's been so reluctant to, like, come out and say, like, this this album is what it, like, really obviously is. Like, she's really let the music, like, speak for itself instead of making, like, some grand press tour around... Not that I mean there's going to be that many people interviewing her about it. Moved on. She has a new single out. Yep. You know, she's like, I'm done. Like, I did my little live concert, which I don't know if you watched it, but um, it was... Um, I, I really enjoyed it, but there is something that Japan is doing. Like, you know, a lot of nations are doing, like, knee-jerk reactions to COVID, blah, blah, blah. But Japan, you guys have one of the silliest things that you can't, like, applaud after a live performance. So everything is just, like, like crickets after they finish a song. It's fucking, like, ridiculous and, like, just so, like, I don't know, watching, like, anyone perform now is just, like, really kind of, like, just insanely funny. Yeah, I haven't been to a concert in years. The last one I went to was Utada, and I, we, we clapped then, I remember, but um, I want to go see Bish this year because it's their last year before they... uh. Uh, disband, and I, I'm, like, looking forward to seeing, like, what that looks like. But um, to go back to the song, I want to I wanna read one more, like, translated section here that is, like, really, like, touched my heart. The melodies I heard back then, the colors I saw, the way I learned and played, the way the fireworks scattered, too many memory corrections. I can't stop thinking about what's important, and I can't stop the flow of time and space around my mind. History goes around, lost and confused. <laughs> yeah what do you say to that really it's just, it's just so deliberate in its language that i really don't think it's a fault of the translation it really comes across like she's she's speaking on like metaphysical terms and and also getting like deeply psychological with her own circumstances and it's like man it's heavy shit it is heavy <laughs> it's beyond anything I've ever seen for, like, this pop girl to be doing, like, Kantian metaphysics on herself about, like, the role of her fucking bow. Like, <laughs> I can't... Sorry, that was disgusting. I have a cold from last week. But, like, it's, like, 
unbelievable that she is like practicing like real philosophy like based on like the image of her like enormous bow that she used to wear all the time right oh yeah it's it's i don't know like (laughs) i can't really like put it in any sort of like much more eloquent words about how significant the whole you know the image of the bow is it and and like in the video it's like this lording you know presence over her and it is it goes back to the whole like <laughs> sisyphean analogies we were talking about it it is it is the boulder over her in a way absolutely um let's go on to the next song here as much as i could probably just like read the lyrics of the whole song forever and just be like wow amazing <laughs> you could write a whole like essay on it and ju- and every single like line would at the end of it would be like wow <laughs> slay like literally <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sorry, like, my body is, like, falling apart. Okay. So the next song is, uh, Kimi ga ii ne kuretara, which is, uh, this is kind of, like, one of the songs where, uh, she, um, is, like, pulling on, once again, like, uh, older Japanese, like, music. But this is kind of, like, where, like, a ghost of, like, city pop kind of starts to turn up on the album. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was, like, a really interesting thing for her to do especially after like kamaitachi where she's like going like thousands of years back but then she also goes back to something like as recent as the 80s and city pop is like a very special kind of genre especially in the west where it's like it is both what it is but it's also not what people seem to think it is and uh it has like a texture to it that makes it like immediately like nostalgic for anybody um but there's always a kind of something inaccessible and like kind of like phony to me about the way that like people listen to it. So seeing her touch on it here, I find uh, really interesting. Yeah, um, it, it's hard to, there's definitely, I, like I remember listening to the album for the first time and I was thinking like there's definitely some city pop elements on this album. And especially towards the end, it feels a lot more explicit, but this is where it, yeah, it starts to rear its head in. And it's like, the interpretation of how, uh, particularly with Westerners, uh, interpret something like city pop is is also you can't really get away from that conversation without mentioning how like vaporwave was a thing mm-hmm. from 2015 to 2019. There was that span of years where it like just came and sort of went and stuck around probably longer than anybody expected it to because there was like it all had to do with not only just like legacy technology and how we view that through like this goldfish uh goldfish bowl effect um but it's also like the the dialogue between um western audiences and and japanese media because a lot of the time in the imagery of of stuff like city pop and vaporwave there would be like you know japanese skylines and you know talking about like (laughs) ghost in the shell and serial experiments lane and all these animes and stuff like that and like as a Westerner, you think, like, these are the coolest things on the fucking planet, and you get very, like, doe-eyed about it, but at the same time, there's, like, at the at the back of it all, there's, like, the, um, the being a bit cynical about where the future might be heading, um, and it's not really, like, the, 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 the rosy cyberpunk future that we think it's going to be. It's going to be something a little bit more <laughs> uh, benign and nefarious. Absolutely. That's really well said, and I, I've been thinking a lot about, like, how, like, the past image of, a uh japan that kind of infects like the public consciousness of what they think is going to like come forward and uh the uh 
absolutely untrue lie that like Japan is like a technologically like advanced nation, which is just like untrue. And it's because like people have seen like four like blurry Tumblr pictures of like Shibuya, and they're like, wow, you know, it's like it's interesting to like see her like pull on like those same aesthetics and like in the context of this album where she's like really like defeating like her own image or something and it seems like kind of like uh based in that way doesn't it (laughs) yeah i mean it's when you because also at the back of it all and with that same imagery within the whole like vaporwave city pop aesthetic is a lot of it is centered around like the j-pop idols of the 1980s and um at at the back behind all that nobody kind of like understands the the economic context of what Japan was going through at the time mm-hmm. where they're in this massive economic bubble and everybody, at least from out West and even still to this day, perceived it as like this boom period for Japan, but it had like this kind of like lording presence of uncertainty and, and um, to follow economic outbreak from then on. And it's, it really does parallel like where, you know, certain countries in the West are right now, really where we're just like, hyperinflation and <laughs> what's to come after that and uh yeah absolutely steven what did you think about this song i just honestly like this whole stretch of the album because i'm just taken back to like matsuda seiko songs and mm. just that type of production and it just puts me in a in a good mood um, like i think you guys have covered kind of the what the lyrics are and how they like talk, speak to like her position um but i'm just vibing really with the production on this album so much just because it's like the right level of nostalgia but also with like a forward line going through it um and so you know i'm ready to get to the second half of the album which kind of is more of my favorite track oh that's interesting because i liked the first i think i was more interested in the first half when i first started listening and like now i'm like i like the back half like uh no, I I like the whole album as like a whole, but it is interesting that this is like really truly like a, a a double record basically, and it's like the first half are those like you know monumental like uh, postmodern like destructo songs, and like here it's like this like kind of um like gauzy like twilight of uh you know older references to like Masada Seiko is a great example of like what she kind of is like evoking on these tracks and. Uh, I find it interesting to see her do, like, nostalgia in this way in, in, in both facets. But uh, we can talk about Gamu Gamu Girl. <laughs> Gum Gum Girl. Another song with candy in the title. Steven, what do you think about this one? This I, this kicks off the second half of the album for me. Just, like, even from the music video where she's, like, taking a tab of acid pretty much in it. It just starts, like, something off that is just, like... I think it starts off kind of like the next push of just like straight up 90s, like uh, Tetsuya Komoro produced like crazy dance records that I just like, those are my bread and butter. They sound corny. They're rooted in like Italo disco that kind of like, I feel like J-pop, why I really like it is because it never quite escaped like disco and Italo disco in the 80s. It kind of just morphs into like the production on the later half of the album, which I'm just like, I don't know. I'm dancing. I'm having fun. Like, it, it just is a, it's a great song. 
love that. <laughs> I mean, that's just something important to think about too, because I mean, we've been really going like into like the image and like the the meaning of like the art here, but like there's also something to be said for something that's just like really like well produced and engaging, and it's like. Um, I mean, that's kind of been, like, the ethos of, like, all American pop music, and it's, like, doesn't matter what anyone's saying at all, and it just is, like, the vibe, as it were. But, like, it's it's engaging to see, like, how that she can still pull this off with Nakata as well, like, in, on this side of the project. Right, no, definitely. I think it, it, it's good because, like, you have, you know, all of our perspectives on this are a little different. I think mine is just, like, mine's more like I'm, like, chilling with this production and just, like, letting Nakata take me on like a journey and i'm like when i listen to this shit like i'm dancing around my apartment just like carefree just like really just into the production of it all it's uh and this is yeah like i said before this is the the kickoff for the second half which has my favorite songs in it and i think really just like brings the energy up to the to the finish of the album which i think is, is yeah what did you think fog brain um, yeah, I'm in the same position as, as you, um, with how I perceive the second half of the album. I definitely prefer the first half more because I, it goes back to kind of like the energy and where the direction of, you know, her sound is sort of going from then on. But like, it's not to say that anything from the second half isn't good. It's really good. Like, especially like that's where the production really does shine on the whole album. Um, and it, you, you know, see more of like the, the, um, motifs of the traditional, Japanese instrumentation and all the iconography and the in the music videos and the mythos and all that and that like that's all like really uh fascinating to me and it's just like um yeah it's 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 definitely a tale of two different albums really but like they're, they're combined into this into this one album that is relatively short and it it just feels like really compact and well done and it's um it's almost like making the makeup of two different like personality types for the for both the viewer or the the listener and um for Carrie herself and and also Nakata probably as well. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I but it's yeah, it's a great song. I love it. I love the bouncy nature of it. It's it's a good vibe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good vibe for sure. Uh, we can talk about a a song that is like especially. Uh, kind of uh, perplexing to me, which is a perfect onesan, which is like perfect elder sister. If you just say one, it also means faggot in uh, English, so that's great. Um, and something I was thinking about in context of this song uh, is that she got fucking cancelled in America like two years ago. She got like hardcore cancelled by like the J-pop community for uh, tweeting uh, what Westerners perceive to be pedophilic content about uh the how cute she thought her like one of her little boy dancers was on like the tour i mean it was just like a fundamental misunderstanding of like what kawaii means in the first place which is like childlike and like the entire like japanese notion of cuteness is like around like big-eyed like childish like kind of like stuff and so she was like oh like you're so cute i just want to sleep in the same bed with you and all of a sudden like the you know, the soft core, like, uh, J-pop community began to, like, start screaming in terror. Yeah, like, McMartin preschool trial Twitter. <laughs> just kind of really crazy. UNICEF Twitter was there. Um, yeah, it was just all from, like, a fundamental mistranslation by, like, a bunch of people running Google Translator and just not understanding anything. I, I, it's, it was unfortunate. For her, 
and also added to her like you know crazy demise in the past year so yeah absolutely so i mean i was thinking a little bit about that um especially since like so much of like her uh, imagery is like based around like childishness or whatever but like uh the, the i'm so popular hot take is that pedophilia is not an important problem in 2022 and i'll just leave it at that um but this is a, a sweet <laughs> it's like a sweet uh song about uh once again like uh this like tragic like kind of a uh, role that she's like been sitting in is she kind of like idealizes like this um other like figure uh, and uh, she writes another beautiful lyric that I have translated where she says, it is a, probably a sense of interiority, etc. I feel that I can, I know if you can see what to do, negative, he is positive for him. It's like, there's like this uh, really like bizarre like sense of like human relations like throughout this album, and it's like interesting to like see her like uh, visiting like an idol of herself where like she's been like idolized by, uh, you know, the culture for so long. Is Nakata gay? Is anyone gay in Japan? Like, I'm, I grow, like, <laughs> less and less certain of the answer to this, like, all the time. I mean, there's that picture of him, like, making out with that guy in the club or whatever, or, like, them necking on each other. It seems like everyone is both a little gay and not gay at all. <laughs> when you said, like, onase means faggot or something like that. I don't know, I just, like, kind of like this song a lot because there's that extended, like, breakdown I love that. Where I just thought it was where like Nakata was like, you know what? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the fucking driver right now and just do my thing. Um and you know, there's a long portion of the song that just goes on without like Kiari on it at all. And I just kinda enjoyed it because he like kinda took the wheel and just did something just did something fun for the kids. Yeah, and she refers to herself as a perfect puppet as well on this, which is especially striking for a song with like she's like not even present for a like a long stretch of it. Right. Do you think that's kind of like it goes back to some sort of like commentary on idol culture and and how the industry works? Maybe. Well, I think she knows for sure. Like, I I think you know her being like twenty nine. Like we've kind of like established that like she's like aware of like uh both the way that, like, she's been, like, kind of turned into an object, like, both by, like, the West and the East without, like, being, like, physically, like, truly tangible on either of them. And so for her to, like, idealize someone else and, like, kind of, like, look to them for inspiration and then end up realizing herself as a puppet, I, I feel like you have to see something there, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the song yeah. is also so fucking catchy. Like, this is one of the songs that, like, the melody, like, da, 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 is just, like, constantly, like, floating through my brain since the first time I heard it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think it's one of my favorite songs on the album, really. Like, and I didn't really expect that after such a good first half. And and it's just got, like, such a, a bouncy, sort of, like, bruisey, again, kind of goes back to sort of city pop vibes in a way. Um sound to it and i don't know yeah. if it was just me but like i thought it sounded pretty similar to vitamin drop by perfume mm. i totally get it it's also the longest song she's ever made apparently so and i think a lot of that has to do with like <laughs> nakata coming in and doing his thing yeah a six minute song for her is like impossible it would have been impossible to imagine like when she was like doing like cherry bonbon which is like a minute and 30 seconds or like ring a bell which is like 45 seconds and stuff it's like she's done like these like really ephemeral like little like 
charges of like candy coated you know crap or whatever like in her past and then to see her like do like a six minute like reference to city pop with like these like kind of like a groovy like sad kind of like shinjuku at twilight like kind of mood behind it and then with a dance break is like wow it's like such a development once again like you said Fogbrain earlier if i was gonna write an essay about this i'd have to end every sentence with wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Um, let's talk about the next song as we, like, approach, like, the last, uh, three songs of the album. And I think Steven said this is his favorite. This is Jumping Up. Yeah, this is, this is my crack. Um, I like Joni McCarrie just talking about. It's just the beat. It is, like, literally a TRF song, like, which is that type of, like, that level of, like, 90s corniness in dance tracks is just, like, kind of my, my favorite thing in the world. So I kind of just lose it on this, and um, yeah, I played it like 151 times last year. That's incredible. It's just like, and, and it came out in September. <laughs> I feel like I listened to it like when I would wake up in the morning to like like sleep at night. It was just like one of those things where just like the Illuminati earworm that they created is just like outrageous. Oh yeah, and it has like that like a uh, like frayed like vocal sample going like oh that like he keeps like using like over and over again and like in the hands of another artist like this would be so embarrassing and like like impossible to palate but like I don't know like Nakata kind of channels all of like his like incredible electronic music impulses that were so wasted in the 2010s and like does like something that like actually accomplishes like the mission of like exciting. EDM music here. Right, and it had, like, such a nod to, like, corny little 90s songs, like, um, you know, D'Agostino and uh, fucking Venga Boys. It was just, like, on a level of just, like, it was, like, walking the thin line of, like, corniness and genius and kind of just, like, just traveled off into, like, genius territory. Um, I, I, It's the one song on this that I am just so... Mad did not become like a huge TikTok hit or something because I really feel like she had something here with just the the intonation of the eh, eh. like it just was everything was there for me and I'm so upset like that there is not a video and they did not do something. I just am, like, furious at, like, you know, the idea of, like, nostalgia, like, nostalgic, like, you know, 90s, 80s references that's, like, become, like, the dominant... I bring this up, like, I think, like, every other fucking episode, but I hate Dua Lipa, and I hate, like, her idea of, like, the history of pop music and the way she evokes it, like, feels, like, so, like, like... It's boring. It feels, like, plastered down with, like, an electric saw and, like, feels like if you touched it, it'd be, like a perfect object, like, so smooth that it would, like, unsettle you, and she has, like, no point of view or anything, but, like, Nakata doing, like, this, like, low-key, like, kind of perverted, like, weird, like, 90s worship here is just delight. It's just delectable. I'm obsessed as well. Yeah, I really love how, like, (laughs) I really love how, like, unabashed it is with, yeah, it's, it's kind of, like, 90s nostalgia over it, and, and, like you said, it's, um, the stuff that the way the way the West does that sort of thing, it, it does feel so like trite or whatever. And I think a lot of it has to do with going back to like how we completely exhausted things like Vaporwave and City Pop and Hyperpop. And it's just like we've gone through these trends so many times to the point that they're so oversaturated. And you know when it's bad when you're seeing like, you know, 
<laughs> these sorts of things like coming up in in um in western media like in mainstream ways like film or whatever it's like going back to just regurgitating all of the um the worst aspects of the 80s and 90s with the, the um the, the you know the obvious the synthesizers and you know like neon aesthetics and all that sort of thing mm -hmm. and but in this sort of way it's it, and again it goes back to like the whole thing of the album where it's it, it's sincerely earnest with its intentions and and delivery that even something is like poppy and um happy-go-lucky as this track is it's like it doesn't feel like there's something being sold to me while i'm listening to it you know yeah that's perfectly said cardi pami pami refuses to sell even as she's a pop artist song of Candy Racer is Natsuhiro Flower, the color of summer flower. Um, so this is like probably like the most uh, notably like throwback, like nostalgic, like city pop moment. No, it's definitely like, um, I have a friend that, um, you know, listened to the album or whatever and he texted me and he was like, this is the song. This is like surprising. It's like a very different thing that like Jerry has never really done. I I don't think there's another song that she has that is quite like this. It's a different tempo. It's a different like everything. So I, I'm curious to hear what other people have to think about it. Yeah, yeah. It is the most definitely the most downbeat song I think she's ever really made, and it's it's yeah it, it's where it gets like explicitly city pop or vaporwave and i like when i was listening to it i was thinking of all the um the artists that i think about when um you think about those particular genres like you know 2814 uh, macross and you know uh monaco yoshida and you know obviously maria takuchi and uh and then i also think about like the sort of like funky jazzy sort of um city pop type artists which i don't know if they were explicitly city pop but like hiroshi sato and masayoshi tanaka takanaka sorry um and yeah it's i really just really like how cruising the track is and and against the whole album it contrasts really well as if it was like this nighttime road trip that you've been going at such high speeds for um the first half of the album um and then you know kind of like cruises down into this slower tempo and um you know you get, I, I don't know i just think of all these images of like you know the high speeds now come to an end and the <laughs> the the night of clubbing is over and the sun is slowly rising and you're heading back to the coastline to just go back to bed and sleep all day <laughs> yeah drunk on the beach ripping cigs like 
Yes. Yeah, totally. And it's like, um, I think, you know, you really get that effect when you listen to the whole project as like a complete vision where like the real relaxation and like kind of catharsis of like reaching like this like slow temple, like temple, slow tempo, like beautiful uh, moment is like, it really does like feel like the dawn coming up. And, you know, um, during the break, we were talking about like my YMO episode. And like, I remember like when the sun started coming up when I was talking about that music and it like, it really felt like similar to like how this sounds to me after you've been through the whole perilous Kantian voyage of Kairi Pamu Pamu reconciling with her image to have like this, um, Natsukashi, like very nostalgic, like uh, warm, beautiful sunrise, like over all like the peril of unpacking herself that she's been through up to this point. Yeah, that's such a good way to put it. It's like from any sort of amount of introspection that you have, even personally, when you kind of like listen to an album where you're doing it in your own time, just thinking about things, you, mm-hmm. you get to a certain point where your 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 mind is is stopped racing at at such a high speed, and you're you're thinking about all these like really um, complicated concepts and 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 like the the metaphysics of things and like what does this mean what does that mean and then you kind of like get to a point where you wind down a bit and then all of that weight of expectation and kind of like challenging yourself falls away and then it becomes you feel a lot more lighter like the 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 pressure is lifted off your chest and um it's like a yeah when you listen to the whole album in context like that it really feels like that whole experience when you when you are faced with something so self-confrontational mm-hmm. and you know this is something special about music as well which is that you know through like these like sensual and ephemeral kind of a uh, noise like literal noises that you hear it's able to, like, produce, like, mood in a way that, like, nothing else can. And, of course, I'm, like, a big proponent of, like, slowing down and, like, reading every word on the page and, like, forcing yourself through the process of absorbing something that might be, like, boring or whatever. But, like, there is, like, something to be said about, like, the incredible, like, quality of music, which is that just, like, a sequence of sounds, like, in a language that, you know, I don't think, you know, either of you, like, are especially fluent in, and I'm, you know, you know, not even great at Japanese myself, I, I often feel, and it's, like, just, like, the fact that across, like, a, a culture and through all of these, like, layers of, um, like, references to older genres, like, there's still, like, a, a beating, like, heart there that, like, produces, like, emotional blood into the spirit. No, for sure. I'm always, like, very annoyed by people that will not listen to music in a different language because I just, you know, I don't, my understanding of Japanese is like basically nothing. I know some vocabulary, you know, I can pull some things out here and there, but um, I don't even think you need that. It's more of a feeling that you get and that that translates. Um, And I think that this song is like also very sensual. I think I looked up the lyrics and it's like, am I, am I on the right track here? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it is. I think it's like, uh, her kind of like, uh, use, I mean, Japan has like the endless, uh, you know, habit of like, uh, thinking about their extraordinarily hot summers as like a focal point for like memory, right? Like so much like Japanese like art is like based around like the summer or like especially around like in like building grunts or you know coming of age stuff like 
the last summer before like you leave like your hometown or anything and so like her like flame framing it around that is like absolutely like a kind of like sensual way of like tapping into her memory and like using it to evoke something you know powerful and felt yeah it's it's like you know when you watch something like a Takeshi Kitano film like Sonatine or Hanabi or um yeah any of those type of films where it's like very tough exterior people being confronted with themselves in in very tranquil environments like a Kikajiro is also like that as well where it's like the the dialogue between you know the the hardened adult version of yourself and the child version of yourself that has to like come to terms with each other on these like beautiful serene environments that we typically associate with the summer like the beach and you know the grassy lawns and you've got like the in especially when you watch japanese media you've got like the bugs chirping in the in the summer breeze yes it's just the like, cicadas yeah the cicadas yeah and it's just like it brings up all those sort of like images to me and 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 how like it personally relates to what you know you might be going through no totally that's really beautifully said and um I mean, I've also been thinking about this because I've been, like, on a bizarre, like, Kate Bush, like, kick lately. And, like, she also is, like, very, like, in touch with, like, the child or whatever. And for some reason, like, I remember, like, always thinking about, like, the phrase your inner child or, like, like the fantasy of youth or something has always, like, kind of embarrassed me. But, like, a quality that both, like, Kauri Pamu Pamu and Kate Bush have to me is, like, they can evoke, like, these, like fantastic images of like youth and like the like the wonder of the universe like in a in an adult setting and like make it feel like true and genuine and not like embarrassing when i think of like your inner child or whatever like cloud busting does like the kind of the same thing as like this song does to me in a way right because the narrative of cloud busting is like what what is this song god i'm blanking here but um yeah no no she like approaches it writing it as a child yeah. And it's, like, incredible to me that, it's like, both of these artists can pull it off without, like, embarrassing me. So, good job, girls. Um, the last song on this album is one of the most interesting and unexpected, and it's uh, World Fabrication, which is, in fact, a cover of a Capsule song from 2005. Um, and, of course, it's presented much differently here. Um, but this is a kind of, like, the it's just a beautiful like way to close the album with like what it's talking about um especially with the way we've gone through her whole distance through the self and like recreating herself and like eliminating and annihilating herself reducing herself to only an instrument and you know she sings in the first lyrics of this song like thank you all into this wonderful world i'm already vanishing disappearing but before i do thank you like she closes this album with a virtual suicide note yeah exactly it it it's and the whole kind of like surface of it being like this jazzy upbeat tone does feel like it's a a sort of like a closing number two and you know when you pair this with the theatrical elements that she has throughout the album especially with her music videos and stuff it feels like you know it is a, a literal curtain closer to perhaps not only the album itself, but maybe like she, she could be talking about potentially her career or the kind of person that she used to be and is now. And, you know, the whole kind of vibe of the song is like the same sort of feeling that you get when you watch like 
an anime you really enjoy and then the uh, the the closing credits is like these like you know bittersweet ending songs yeah no it's exactly like that and i just um you know the world is like but a flash that you subjectively experience for like one burst of of life and uh that's all there is it's like very gaspar noe in that sense it's like you have like this like one rush of existence and then it's gone and to acknowledge that like this uh, ephemeral world is like going to quickly like escape her fingers as well as like everyone else's like as she's like uh gone through like this ritual practice of exposing like and realizing herself it feels like really beautiful and it's it's not tragic or like dismaying to like hear her like think about the fact that like this is all going to go up into nothingness for her like you know one day like whether it's her career or her life or anything it's like this will all go away but instead of it feeling nihilistic or depressing it like is like kind of like a beautiful you know salute to the fact that like we are here for this flash right and I kind of feel like it may feel a little calculated as well. I, I think that this is like definitely a move that she's doing. I mm-hmm. find a little humor. I find a little humor in it as well. Um, it makes me think about um, kind of like this transition from idol into like kind of you know established artist, legend, icon uh, thing. It's like when Ayumi Hamasaki in like 2001 did like her best album. Her you know, after I think it was only like two albums, her record label made her do like a best album. Um, and she was so against it because your best album kind of means like you're done. Um, and whoever to, I mean, who's the best person to say your career is over if not a record executive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, um, and so she kind of went out and put herself on like over 40 magazine covers that same week. Um, and then the cover of the album is her, like, with a single tear going down, like, her face plastered all over billboards, like, everything of just, like, this is me, like, the death of Ayumi Hamasaki. Like, and uh, it's just as, like, kind of just, like, you will remember my face. And I feel like this is kind of, like, the same thing that, like, Kiari is doing with this album is, like, I have made i have done my blueprint i've shown my impact and i'm ready to like go to the next step i just think it's a a perfect ending for you know kind of her like idol phase yeah it's like a rejection almost in a way of like the being part of the grecian myth of of being like ascended into a type of like uh uh idolized god image really and it's almost like she doesn't want to be that it's almost it's very like promethean in spirit really it's like she rejects that concept and wants to be her own individualized self as an artist completely and it feels like that this last song feels like a a very uh explicit and you know considered statement on that absolutely it's wig it's twirl this is absolutely twirl, by the way. This is 100% wig and leg and boots. Like, this is all of it. And I I love how combative she is. It, like, really does, like, feel like she's, like, pushing against, like, that instinct to, you know, keep her as, you know, some abstracted image. She says, uh, as I'm punched and electrocuted by people on TV, I don't see myself in the reflection when I look in the mirror. And then she says, I shove a piece of French toast into my computer 
Welcome to our world, the beginning of a show, world fabrication, push the button in my head. And it's like, how incredible to, instead of like, you know, give yourself up into like the endless whirlpool of like fame and meaningless simulacrum of image that occupies the entire reality of celebrity. Instead, she pushes a piece of French toast into the, into the fucking simulation and world fabrication. I just... It's so sublime. I use this word all the fucking time, but I don't care. It's sublime to see somebody defeat the industry, like the mechanisms of what have been placed on top of them in these chains and shove a piece of French toast into the fucking computer and annihilate the world fabrication and exist on your own terms that you create through a will to power. Like, there is nothing more incredible and something that so few people are capable of doing as to truly assert yourself as an individual, as, like, a freaked-out pervert, like, obsessed with, like, children's music and with 90s, like, production, and to do that by, like, revisiting an older song from his catalog is, like, it's true masterwork. It's it's the end. It's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, it's circles within circles. Perfect. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it's all done in like a humorous sort of way and that's like the funny part of it is like it especially when you um it has the line about the french toast because in one of her earlier uh music videos i remember she's like running down the street with a piece of french toast in her mouth and it goes back to that same imagery that the rest of the album has where it's like all these things that you commonly associate with her she's just like rejecting it and putting it back into the to the simulation saying like you can keep this perceived version of me that you um have come up with with the all of the aesthetics behind it and the kind of person that you think i am and i'm just going to go back out into the real world where i can like be something you know uniquely my own yeah it's exactly evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 on the beach like erasing everything and then stepping into reality it's like this is, you know, one of the most powerful things that, like, Japanese, like, pop culture and art has ever been able to do is to, like, what, like, in so many iterations of its media is to, like, pierce the, the layer and curtain of art and to, you know, force the viewer and the audience and the characters themselves, like, the subject Kaidi Pamu Pamu or, like, Ikari Shinji or the audience, like, watching either of them and, like, forcing them into the real world where all of these imagined feelings like actually exist somewhere and instead of retreating from them and running away you slam the piece of french toast into the computer and enter reality that's the true graduation <laughs>